Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it transcends time frame and culture. It is both written by a transcendent God, but one who broke through into our realm and used his servants to write the words down for us. We thank you that your gospel is far-reaching. We thank you that it didn't just stay to one specific people group, but that it spread all around the world and included everyone in the whole world. Lord, we thank you for the truths of the gospel that your word declares to us. I pray that we would make its commands and its teachings part of who we are and live them out. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in eighth grade, students in my middle school performed a rendition of the classic musical play, Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody hear that story, Fiddler on the Roof? For those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it centers around a Jewish family with five daughters living in Russia around the turn of the 20th century. It's a story of faith, tradition, struggle, and family. I played Perchik, a university student who tutored the main family's two youngest daughters and ended up getting engaged to the second oldest daughter. The, the audience who came to see us bumble our way through a Broadway classic, sat in the school's auditorium and watched what was going on stage. To them, all that was going on was what took place on that stage in front of sets, right in front of their eyes. That's all they knew what was going on. What they didn't know, however, was that us rambunctious 13 and 14 year olds were just running around the cafeteria throwing things at each other until, until the director's assistant told each of us when we were supposed to get ready for our next scene. And then we would get ready and be ready to go out the door. So the audience though, all they saw was what was performed in front of them and they had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato popularized an image of philosophical theory in which he described a group of people who have been chained inside a cave for their entire lives. All they can see is what lies in front of them, which is a blank wall, a blank cave wall. A fire sits at the mouth of the cave. As people, animals, and objects pass in front of the fire at the mouth of the cave, behind this group of people, all this group of people can see are the shadows that they project onto the cave wall in front of them. Plato claimed that this group of people was the average human beings on earth. He then claimed that the philosopher was one like from this group that broke his chains and escaped and recognized reality for what it was in all its differing textures and dimensions. The shadows on the wall, while seen and believed to be reality, were in fact not reality. They were only a picture, a glimpse at reality. True reality was what was going on behind the scenes. Just as Paul himself referenced and utilized ancient Greek philosophy to relate the gospel to those in Athens, I'll borrow his technique. Plato kind of had it right if the interpretation is related to what is described for us in the Bible. And you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. 
A few weeks back, when we finished up our mini-series on the Antichrist, we talked about how the majority of the world's population in the last days of this earth will be deluded into believing that the Antichrist is really the Christ. We then connected it to us as believers in Jesus today, that while we will not experience the horrific events of the last days, nor have to contend with the Antichrist, that we're so often lulled into believing another spiritual deception. That spiritual deception is that of ignoring or neglecting to recognize the invisible spiritual battles against the forces of darkness that are going on all around us all the time. We talked about why it was so important to clothe ourselves with the whole armor of God, as Paul describes in Ephesians 6, to be on the alert and aware of what battles were really fighting. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, had to point-blank tell us that the battles we fight are not against flesh and blood, not even battles with ourselves, but they're battles against cosmic, cosmic powers of darkness in heavenly places. That changes the whole picture, doesn't it? If you want to know where I'm getting all of that, you can read about all of that in Ephesians chapter 6. In our current New Testament letter, Paul has just finished up his message about the future Antichrist. And even though the Thessalonian believers and us as well didn't have to worry about him, how that should affect our lives now. Paul explained that we should not think that all is well and good and sink into a lifestyle of being distracted and lulled to sleep by the world but that we should see our salvation from destruction as having a crucial purpose. God did not give us faith in the death and resurrection of his son for our salvation to live purposeless lives that didn't look any different from anyone else in the world. That's not why he gave us that faith. No, he chose to restore us back to an unbroken connection with him as almighty and most holy God. And included in that purpose is the process of transforming us back into our originally created purpose. Our originally created purpose, if you go all the way back to Genesis, was to be representations and representatives of God. That's what being made in the image of God is all about. That lifelong process, transformation process, is what the Holy Spirit starts to go to work accomplishing in us from the moment we place our faith and trust in the salvation that can only come from Jesus' death and resurrection. It consists of both inward change that only God can see and the outward change that grows out of that inward change, change that others around us are supposed to see happening. Getting back to our opening image of Plato's philosophical theory, those who are held in bondage in the cave and can only base their version of reality on the shadows that they can see and understand are all those all around us who live according to the world's standards, viewpoint, and way of doing things. Believers in Jesus have been freed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to see things the way that they really are these spiritual movements and battles that are the true reality, even though we can't see them. 
In our passage this morning, Paul connects back with that behind-the-scenes spiritual movement as the basis for what is seen with our eyes. In the previous section, Paul described the Antichrist as the figure who would be seen and Satan as the one behind the scenes empowering him and pulling his strings. Paul again connects to that uh, background spiritual darkness as the basis for his opposition. But more importantly, Paul describes the ongoing background work and movement that God is doing in the hearts of believers in Jesus. Even though we must be aware of the power of the forces of spiritual darkness and realize when they are trying to dig at us and come at us, thank God, literally thank God, that that is not the only thing going on behind the scenes of this world. There is something much more powerful at work at the same time, and that is the movement of the Holy Spirit in the world and in our lives. When people would ask me what it was like serving as a pastor in inner city Philadelphia, I'd always tell them, while you see the enemy at work in mighty ways, that's undeniable, you can see the Holy Spirit at work in even mightier ways. There's a reason why the Greek word that Paul uses for the Holy Spirit is the same as breath or wind, pneuma in the Greek. God breathed out the entire universe by his words in six days. God breathed out his word to us by the movement of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will vanquish the Antichrist with nothing but the breath of his mouth. The Red Sea was parted by a supernatural east wind. We can't see the wind, but it's one of the most powerful natural agents in the world, isn't it? Try telling somebody who has gone through a hurricane that wind is not one of the most powerful agents in this world. In the same way, God's breath, supernatural wind, and the Holy Spirit are forces that can't be seen but they drastically change what can be seen. Because of that, Paul directs his focus to the almighty being that is, in reality, the one whose force is what changes lives and alters the course of the entire world. He directs the Thessalonians' focus, and God is directing our focus to the most powerful weapon in these unseen battles of our lives. And the first one is the power of prayer. The power of prayer. We're continuing on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. If you can't find it, that's perfectly fine. Look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. It's in the New Testament. We're in chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse, uh, verses 1 through 2. And we read, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Paul implores the Thessalonians to pray for two things here. For the wildfire-like spread of the gospel, and for human opposition that he knew was really spiritually driven by the forces of darkness. Let's start with with that second one. Let's start with the spiritual opposition. Why was Paul writing to the Thessalonians in the first place. Why wasn't he telling them this in person? Because he was driven out 
by Jewish men antagonistic to the message of Jesus as Messiah and influential Gentile pagans in powerful city positions. Paul was well acquainted with what kind of response, with this kind of response from him preaching the gospel. He was very well acquainted with this. We read in Acts that he had certainly already encountered it during his first missionary journey to Galatia. Do you remember when we covered his New Testament letter to the Galatian churches that while he was preaching in one of the cities in Galatia that he was beaten so badly by people throwing rocks at him that everyone thought he was dead? That was the start of perhaps the inflammation that led to his decreasing eyesight. Following that, Paul had also certainly encountered on his second missionary journey, just before he walked into the port city of Thessalonica. Just before Paul had arrived in Thessalonica, he was preaching the gospel in a city close by called Philippi. The city officials of Philippi ordered and watched as Paul and his missionary companion Barnabas were beaten with nightsticks and thrown into a prison. You may remember when we first started exploring Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians that I referenced one biblical scholar who said it was probably with the fresh scars on their bodies from their beating in Philippi that Paul and Barnabas walked into Thessalonica. That's strength, isn't it? I don't think I could do that. Within a period of a few months... Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy were driven out of Thessalonica then for fear of further persecution, ending up in Berea, where some ringleaders from Thessalonica showed up to drive them out of Berea. Paul knew what was really behind all of those beatings, all of those riots, and all of those imprisonments. And so he implored the Thessalonians to take their privileged portal into the unseen world, prayer, and use it on his behalf. He knew exactly what was going on behind all those beatings and imprisonments. He knew he wasn't wrestling against flesh and blood. He knew he was fighting against cosmic powers of darkness. And so he implored the Thessalonians, use what God has given to you, this privileged portal into the unseen world called prayer on my behalf, please, because I know what I'm really up against here. Paul knew that any human opposition was influenced by none other than the prince of darkness. He said exactly that to the Thessalonians in his first letter to them when he wrote, We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but who prevented us? Satan. He knows, he knows exactly what's going on behind the scenes here. If there was going to be any prevention of persecution any relief from physical beating and imprisonment, and any breaking through the walls set up in front of him by city authorities and violent mobs, it would have to be a spiritual breakthrough. It would have to be, or it wasn't going to happen. It would have to be a defeat in battle handed to the commander of evil. It would have to be that. Paul knew what he was really up against. You can see Paul's understanding of this opposition being spiritual and not merely human because he describes those disrupting his ministry, what? As perverse and evil men. That's what we read in verse 2. 
As one biblical scholar pointed out, the word perverse is another word for wicked and evil. Uh, was another word for, for wicked. And evil was meant to describe these men as actively harmful. In other words, these men were not just wicked in their hearts and they kept to themselves in their sin behind closed doors, but they took everything one step further and acted out of those wicked hearts to actively harm Paul and actively stand in opposition as he attempted to spread the gospel. That's one step further. That active harm could, could not be orchestrated by none other than the enemy of the gospel. Thus his demonic military forces needed to be routed and curbed before Paul could make any progress. Paul was telling the Thessalonians, listen, I know the persecution you're going through. You may feel weak and not influential. You may feel irrelevant and beaten down, but you have the most powerful weapon for the ministry of the gospel that can ever be imagined. You have access to the war room of God to petition Him on my behalf for the victory of the progression of the gospel. Each of you sitting right here, right now, who have been granted salvation through your faith in what Jesus has done for you, have been given the exact same privilege. As the author of Hebrews tells us, come before the throne of grace with boldness, not of your own, but of the gifting of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. You are not powerless when it comes to the evil that you see around the world. You too have access to the war room of God to petition Him, to give commands to His brigades, to break through enemy lines, send the enemy hightailing it, save one more soul for the kingdom, and take back one more piece of territory from the enemy of our souls. You too have that. That behind-the-scenes power of the Spirit is what Paul recognized as being the one who would make any lasting progress with the gospel. Paul recognized that he was only human. He was only a man. He couldn't change anyone's mind. He couldn't free anyone's soul. He couldn't save anyone. He couldn't even progress the church on his own, by his own intellect, and through his own strength. He couldn't do any of that. He knew it. The only power his message had was the power that God infused it with. And so Paul's second prayer to the Thess that, that he wanted the Thessalonians to pray for in these first couple of verses was for God's power to go forth and spread the gospel like wildfire and achieve its end goal, the salvation of souls and the transformation of lives. Paul's plea gives us boldness, doesn't it? We know that Paul was just a mere man. We know that we are just mere humans. Paul's plea gives us boldness. What Paul recognized is exactly what we must recognize as we share God's message of salvation and hope with those around us. And what is that? It has nothing to do with us. Let that sink in. 
It has nothing to do with us. Yes, Jesus gave us the command to join with him in being the mouthpieces of his message, but he's the one doing the actual work of guiding, leading, calling, and changing. All we need to make sure we're doing is sharing the message and then leave it at that. The Holy Spirit is the one who's ultimately going to do anything with it. What I mean is this. We don't need to be confident in being good speakers. We don't need to feel confident in our amount of knowledge of what's in the Bible. We don't need to feel confident that we know how to win arguments or know how to effectively convince anyone of anything. If you are letting the fear of that prevent you from telling someone else about Jesus, get rid of it because you aren't the one saving anyone, even if you do it well, and you aren't the one condemning anyone, even if you mess up. Just that realization gives us freedom and boldness. No one can stop you from sharing your story of how God found you, called you to faith in Jesus, and what changes he's making in you. No one can stop you from doing that. No one can stop you from sharing how God is healing you from your past. No one can stop you from sharing how God has comforted you in times of intense pain, whatever form that took. No one can stop you from sharing how God is freeing you from the chains of addiction, abuse, depression, anxiety, or a worldly way of processing things. In short, no one can stop you from sharing the message of the verses found in Scripture that tell of Jesus loving us, dying for us, rising again for us, restoring us to most holy God, and transforming us in the process. No one can stop you from sharing what the Bible tells of the hope of eternal life with God and how they can have that. No one can stop you. This is why. No one can stop you because it is the power of God that will take what you say and make it worth something in someone else's heart. Because of that, Paul knew that he needed people to pray for him if anything he said was going to make any difference in anybody else's life. But all of that prayer would be pointless if that prayer wasn't directed to the most powerful being and that most powerful being wasn't as passionate and faithful towards the ones pouring out their hearts in prayer to him. It would all be pointless. Be shouting at the ceiling. The fervent and consistent prayer was only half the equation. It was the character of God that made that prayer worth anything. We talked about the power of prayer, and next we're going to talk about that character of God, the passion, the faithfulness of God. The passion of God is seen most vividly in his faithfulness towards us. See, anyone can be passionate about, passionate about any given thing until what happens? Until as soon as it's inconvenient, or it's hard, or it doesn't seem worth it, that passion soon fizzles out. The passionate faithfulness of God is what changes everything for us. 
Paul was not confident in the Thessalonians themselves to follow through with what he was writing to them. He was confident in God's faithfulness to bring it about within and have that inward change then be seen outwardly. Notice what he says over and over again in each of the three verses, verses 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Do you see that? Paul wasn't confident in the Thessalonians' faithfulness towards God in any of the things he wishes for them. He says in verse 3, But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Then he says in verse 4, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. And then in verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts. He didn't have his faithfulness uh, a confidence in the Thessalonians. He had his confidence in God. Paul was confident in the behind-the-scenes faithfulness of God and the unseen movement of the Holy Spirit in hearts. Spiritual battles demand spiritual power. You cannot protect yourself from or be strengthened against the evil one and all the temptations, deceptions, and worldly conformity he shoots at you by yourself. You cannot do that. You cannot overcome temptations and addictions by yourself. So stop trying to. It's impossible because in reality, it's a spiritual battle which demands spiritual power and a confidence in the supernatural faithfulness of Almighty God. You cannot think yourself above or set apart from the deceptions of the enemy. It's a spiritual battle which demands the spiritual armor of God and confidence in the above and beyond faithfulness of God in showing you the truth of spiritual reality. Finally, not one of us can think we're somehow exempt from the righteous standards of God and how we live our everyday lives. We may have been deceived into thinking that we are and that God is just going to be fine with it, but that's not really the way things are. If you're a child of God bought with the hard-fought blood of Jesus, you have automatically signed up to follow God's standards whether or not we like it. That's not a clause that offers you any sort of excuse. All believers in Jesus must renounce being conformed to the way the world sees things and is perfectly okay with things and must be surrendered to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not what you want to it's not what you want to do. We're talking about a spiritual battle which demands a spiritual confidence in God's faithfulness and that he will bless you and take care of you even and especially when you make what changes need to be made. Because of that, any changes that must be made in our lives can only be made with the courage and power the Holy Spirit gives to us and the bold confidence that God will faithfully make that change permanent. Does that mean that we won't ever fail or sin again? Of course not. But what it does mean is a confidence that God's faithfulness towards us 
is that he will continue to make that consistent change in us. That was Paul's confidence in what God was doing with the Thessalonians, as he wrote in verse 4. And that is the same confidence in what God is doing with us, both as individuals in our personal lives, but also as one body of Christ. We know that personally, we will continue to become more and more like the representations and ambassadors of Jesus, not because of any confidence in ourselves or each other, but because of the world-changing power of God's faithful transformation of each of us. And we know that our church will continue to become more and more like the church God wants us to be. Not because of anything any one of us is doing or will do, but because of what God is and will faithfully continue to do with us. Lastly, in verse 5, notice how Paul describes the love that he wanted the Thessalonians to continue to show. And how God describes the love that he wants us to show. What do we read in verse 5? It's not our love, is it? No. Whose love is it? It's God's love. Any powerful love that we can show to anyone else, whether it be a spouse, a child, a relative, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, or a stranger, is not love that we can work up ourselves no matter how much we try. It can only be love that God gives to us to give to any one of those aforementioned people. That's why Paul outright calls it a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. In fact, the first fruit of the Spirit, he mentions, because it has to be grown in us by whom? Ourselves? The Spirit. Likewise, how is steadfastness, the second part of verse 5 here, how is steadfastness or endurance or perseverance, however you want to say it, how is that described here? Whose steadfastness? Ours? Christ's. The same endurance and steadfastness and perseverance he exemplified for us when no one wanted to listen to him, Or when they did, he knew outright it was for the wrong reasons. When he was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness after he hadn't eaten anything for 40 days. When he was homeless, exhausted, and parched. When he was so tired he passed out in a boat in the middle of a lake storm. When he was misunderstood, ridiculed, and mocked. When he was abandoned by the very same people he literally had just told he loved. When he was punched, whipped with glass shards, beaten with nightsticks so badly that no one could recognize who he was. When he was then forced to carry his own splintery cross to Golgotha, and when he had railroad spikes driven into his wrists and feet into that cross, raised up and had to push himself up and down on that splintery cross, up and down that torn apart and raw back, just to take a breath. And when he finally gave up his life, that same steadfastness, endurance, and perseverance that he exemplified for us. Not one of us 
would be able to work up that level of endurance in the face of all that? Anybody here think they could? Not one of us would be able to work up that level of endurance in the face of all that unless it was given to us by God. It's the level of endurance that God calls each of us to. But only because he knows he's going to be the one to give that level of endurance to us. Not because of any confidence in us, but in every confidence of who he is. Again, it's not an endurance in the face of anything humans can do to us. It's a spiritual battle which demands that God be the one to give us the level of endurance required for that battle. In all of this, verse 5 clearly says at the beginning that it must be God who directs our hearts into this transformation. The life of following Jesus is a hard one because it's supposed to be. If you're looking for an easy life being a Christian, it's not going to happen. I'll tell you that right now. The life of a believer in Jesus is a hard one because it's supposed to be. Don't think you're, you're an exception because you're going through all these tough times. It's the way that it's supposed to be. If it was easy, we, wouldn't, we would not need to depend on God to supply us with all the power and strength we need to go through those trials. We could just do it ourselves. We could just coast through life. But that's not the way that God designed it to be. The truth of the matter is, as God's word is very clear about, what we see with our eyes and naturally feel is not the reality of what's really going on. What we see is entirely affected by what is unseen. Again, going back to our opening illustration of Plato's philosophical theory, this earthly world is a shadow of what's going on in the spiritual world. It's always been that way. This isn't anything new. This isn't some kind of New Testament concept. This is the way it's always been. The Israelite conquest of Canaan was not really about God's people annihilating a bunch of innocent people as so many critics of the Bible are quick to shove into our faces. It was the earthly shadow of the spiritual war that was going on between the forces of God and the satanically influenced pagan Canaanite religions. That's what was really going on. If it wasn't, why on earth did God tell Moses, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgressions since my name is in him. This is all very important. Keep that in mind. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. How is this angel described for us? It's, an, it's a description unlike any other description of any type of of supernatural being. And because of that, many biblical scholars believe this to be a reference to none other than the pre-incarnate Messiah, or Jesus, before he took on human flesh and was born as a baby in a manger. Why in the world would Jesus, as a warrior and the commander of God's 
heavenly forces have to go into battle himself on behalf of Israel if what was really going on behind the scenes was not first and foremost a spiritual war. Once Jesus was incarnated as a man and walked among us, he also made this clear statement of how we should pray that most of us know but don't necessarily take to heart. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done, your victory be gotten on this shadow of this earth as it is in the spiritual realm. Do not be deceived. The reality of this world is not what is seen with our eyes, but what is not seen. That means we have an adversary that would love nothing more than to destroy us personally, our families, and our church. That is his mission. That is his end goal. He has no other mission, no other goal, and he doesn't ever sleep. But we also have a faithful God who we can be confident is protecting us, changing us, and is giving us his love and his endurance to face any trial that we go through in this life. We already know who wins this war. If you don't know, flip all the way to the last book of the Bible, the last few chapters of that, and you'll find out point blank who already wins this war. What does that mean? We have nothing to fear. That's what that means. We are to be aware of what's going on all around us in this unseen world, but we also have nothing to fear. We already know who wins this war. But what that does mean is surrendering every single area of our lives to God's righteous transformation. It's his power that saves us, sustains us, protects us, restores us, and makes us into the people that he wants to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that reveals to us these great and deep truths. We thank you that you are always in control, even if what is really going on is not what we are seeing with our eyes, but the spiritual battles taking place that we cannot see. Lord, we thank you that even then, you are in full control of everything that is going on. We thank you that you have called us. You have called us to be your children. You have called us to be a part of your family. You fought hard to give us that gift, enduring all of what we looked at and more, just to give us that gift of being restored to God. We thank you that the story did not end with your death, but that it began when you rose again from the dead. We thank you that you live to give us new life and that you fill us with your Holy Spirit to transform us and to guide us and to protect us and to convict us and to transform us. And we thank you that you have given him to us as a seal on our hearts that we can look at and know our eternal security is sure. 
We thank you for giving us all of these things and so much more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.